Hey, quick one before we start the episode. If you're a return listener of the podcast, could I ask you a favor and get you to rate and review the show? It takes less than a minute, but would help us grow our podcasting presence. Thank you so much for doing that. I really think this is the best episode we've done so far. We speak to Dr. William Huang and Dr. Jason Reeves. Dr. Huang's publication on pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma made the August cover of Nature Genetics. His instinct to connect knowledge from seemingly unrelated fields is both amazing and inspiring. And on the other side of the conversation, Dr. Reeves talks about nanostring support on the findings and how researchers influence the direction technologies take. This is the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. Here at Nanostring, we believe that spatial genomics is at the forefront of discovery and translational biology research. We present the work that researchers are doing in the field and share our initiatives to engage and support them. Dr. Huang and Dr. Reeves, it's such a joy to have you on board for the podcast. I've wanted to speak to you ever since I saw the cover on Nature Genetics. Congratulations on the paper. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for having us. It's great to be here. Great to see you this morning. Can we take maybe five to 10 minutes to talk about your journey into both medicine and research? Sure, absolutely. I actually was more on the research side of things. So in college, I went to Duke and I was engineering and physics major and wasn't pre-med, but slowly got more and more interested in kind of human biology applications and medical applications. And there was one particular class that I took as a senior in college called Devices for People with Disabilities. And it was an elective. It was very competitive to get into, not like by test scores or something, just like there was a long wait list. And that class was very formative for me because because as an engineer at the time, it was my first opportunity to really see the potential impact when you're, in that case, directly applying it to a person in need of help in a medical way. So we worked with this seven-year-old boy who had TAR syndrome, thrombocytopenia, absent radius. And long story short, functionally, he didn't have radii bones. So he had functional hands. He didn't have most of his arm. And he wanted us to build for him some assistive device that would allow him to reach the top cabinet in his parents kitchen and be able to get the juice boxes. And, you know, it didn't matter that other seven-year-olds couldn't do that without doing some dangerous climbing. So we ended up making him these like Google gadget stretcher arms as he called them out of aircraft aluminum. And there was like a little harness that he could take on and off without having full length arms. And it was just such a joy working with him. I realized we were required to meet with our quote unquote clients twice during the semester, once to understand the problem that needed to be addressed. And then once to show them a prototype. And we ended up going like twice a week, me and my team and realized I really enjoyed enjoyed the humanistic side of more biomedical research. So problem was I hadn't done pre-med. So I finished college. Luckily, I had a situation set up. I did a fellowship in England. And then basically during that summer between college and going to England, I studied for the MCAT and I took the MCAT and I decided to apply for MD-PhD programs. So that's kind of how I got into medicine. I don't have any close relatives that are in medicine. So when I actually went to medicine, it was a surprise to me that you had to do this thing called residency. I was like, wait, I thought this was four years. (laughs) And uh, no, I'm not even joking. I mean, I knew there were residencies. I just didn't know it was like so mainstream, right? I thought it was kind of like an optional thing. But long story short, I got really into the medicine side of things too, as that first story may make it not that surprising. But then it was tough because I really liked research. I really liked medicine. So I think I found a nice niche for myself in oncology. And I ended up choosing radiation oncology on the clinical side because it had a lot more patient care than I expected. It gives me a little bit of the technical side of things that I enjoyed in my prior life. And then the research has been wonderful, including all the work that we've done together with Nanostring. 
Part of what struck me when I was listening to the Mendel's part episode is that you marry research together with your care for patients, and that's an integral part of who you are. And, and perhaps would you say that that module that you took in your senior year led to that or was a part of building that? I think so. It definitely brought in the humanistic side. It clarified for me that that's what I wanted to do. Prior to that, I had done a lot of like STEM outreach or on the engineering, math, physics side. I had started this nonprofit, InnerWorks, and was doing a lot of work in that area. But I think the medicine side and like how gratifying I found it to really be able to see it. And it doesn't have to be as obvious as that link, right? Where you build a device for somebody, you see an immediate benefit. But it just crystallized for me that that interface is where I wanted to be. I like things that are at interfaces between disparate fields. And I think that's where I've always thrived and that's where my interests are. I'm not the type of person that knows so much about one area so deeply that I'm going to keep pushing just in that one area and have my biggest impact there. But I think that one of my relative strengths that I noticed from when I was pretty young was that I could see connections. I'll give you one other example. When I went to Oxford, I went to a chemistry lab, Hagen Bailey's lab. And, you know, it was a chemistry lab. They did protein engineering as well. And actually he is the scientific founder of Oxford Nanopore, right? So they did nanopore sequencing and things like that. So when I went there, a postdoc had been just starting to work with putting these droplets together, aqueous droplets that were lined with lipid monolayer. His name was Matt Holden. So when you bring those things together, they kind of click together and they form a bilayer at their interface. And you can do all sorts of fun things. You can think of these as protocells, right? You can think of them as bags of proteins. You can put whatever you want in there. I did a project where I developed asymmetric bilayers because you're bringing two droplets with monolayers together. You can obviously change the composition of the two and that allowed us to model membranes better but one of the first ideas i had when we were doing this was like i was like wow we're building like this network of protocells i was thinking very engineering right and you can put ion channels and pores in them you can drop electrodes and you can record currents the first paper i had there in the journal of american chemical society i basically was like why don't i just model this as a bunch of switches resistors and capacitors and i did some spice modeling and it captured the dynamics really well we ended up making like an acdc converter and like all these other cool things. And I remember the reaction from my advisor. He was very kind. He was like, well, Will, this is like very cool, very innovative. I never thought of it. I was like just out of college. He's like, you need to be corresponding author because, well, one, it's your idea. And two, if people ask me about it, I'm not going to know what to say. <laughs> He was very generous, but that's just one example. But I feel like that's always where I've thrived. And I think where I think I can have the biggest impact is kind of seeing those connections between fields. Like spice modeling is super simple, right? In electrical engineering. But here I was bringing it to a chemistry lab and it, it made for a very novel application. I think it really is something that I'm seeing more and more of, especially within like research institutes where doing cross-discipline or anything that comes in association, knowing those first principles and then applying them to adjacent fields that may not necessarily interweave intuitively. Yeah, I think that's become a bigger and bigger thing. And I think it will continue to be. I completely agree. Honestly, that's one of the things that's happening right now with the research that we've done and with the field moving as a whole. The spatial genomics and spatial multiomics field is bringing together two parties that have been doing amazing research independently and forcing them to think in ways that have been totally revolutionary. You're taking 150 years of folks with experience in pathology and throwing them into the deep end with big data. So it's an exciting time to see how these two completely parallel tracks pollinate each other and really form something special. Yeah.
you can't just have one and not the other. Joe Beecham put it in a very good way. All the pathologists are very used to seeing two to four things at a time, whereas the new generation of geneticists are working with NGS and seeing 10,000 things at a time. And then how do we marry the two together, as Jason just pointed out? Yeah, it's like making a jump from how dogs see things in grayscale and then now all of a sudden being a mantis shrimp and seeing everything in thousands of colors all at once. Yeah, I like that analogy. We're here to talk about pancreatic cancer and your paper on that. Could I understand why pancreatic cancer is so hard to study or is it just a function of the pancreas itself? Yeah, I think it's a combination of the things that you said. Pancreatic tissue physiologically has a digestive function, including macromolecules like RNA, like what we want to study in transcriptomics. So I think that has always been a challenge. It's a little bit less so with tumors because a lot of the kind of normal acinar cells that produce those digestive enzymes are not directly present in the tumor in high concentrations. But I think there's a secondary issue. I was struck the first time I was in the OR with Carlos Fernandez, one of the pancreatic surgeons here. And like when the tumor comes out, it's, you know, you see other tumors and some tumors are kind of soft and kind of fatty and other tumors are a little bit firmer, but like the pancreatic tumor is extremely dense. It reminds me of those rubber balls that you throw and like bounce like crazy everywhere. Like that's like how it feels. And I think that's the other major struggle is if you want to do single cell work, you have to break that apart into viable single cells or nuclei in our case, but either way, you have to separate the tissue into a single cell or nucleus suspension. And I think that's very challenging with the very dense stroma. Even as you're talking about the way that those felt like thick, tough, or some that were soft, you're getting a hint of heterogeneity between the two that they're not entirely the same in terms of composition. Yeah, exactly. And I think even at that gross morphologic anatomic level, you, you there is some appreciation for that. And as Jason alluded to, too, even though pathologists are used to just seeing a few features and mostly looking at simple hematoxylin and eosin stains, some of these things that now we're unlocking with the dawn of spatial biology, if you will, are not super surprising the level of heterogeneity and other details that are being revealed. They're not necessarily surprising to pathologists. It's just before you couldn't really see it, right? Could we take a couple of minutes to go over the publication that's been published in Nature Genetics? Sure, absolutely. I'll give an overview and then we can jump into any details that are of interest. When I finished medical school in 2015, I was an intern in internal medicine at Mass General. I had a one month, I put two two-week research blocks together. I decided to do a somewhat unconventional postdoc rotation with Aviv. So I started with Aviv then. Back then, the only single cell tumor atlas that had been published already was Anu Patel and colleagues had put out a GBM study. I think it was like of like six tumors, something like that. So I was very interested in looking at pancreatic cancer because of the bad outcomes, because I've always been very interested in the GI kind of physiology. There's some other reasons as well, but it was clearly too early. So like early pilots with pancreatic tissue for all the reasons we just discussed didn't really work. So we tabled it for a while. And then when I finished the bulk of my residency and came back in 2018 to do my Holman Fellowship, we revisited this. And in the interim, Naomi Habib and colleagues had done single nucleus RNA-seq on neuronal samples and other very hard to dissociate samples. So we ended up working as a team to try to figure out how to optimize a single nucleus approach for pancreatic cancer. And I had a close working relationship with Carlos Fernandez. I mentioned the surgeon who I still work closely with today. And he had the foresight to develop this biobank of frozen 
frozen pancreatic tumors since 2003. So we had all these frozen tissues around that could not be single cell without an option with the techniques at the time. So we had developed this single nucleus RNA-seq approach that ended up working better than expected. It worked for treated and untreated specimens. So back in 2018, we decided to ask the very kind of interesting but obvious question as well, which was pancreatic cancer sort of responds to standard of care, which is for resectable disease, it's generally neoadjuvant chemotherapy with or without radiation, and then you go to surgery, and then you hope for the best. And the R0 resection rates were still not very high. The complete pathologic responses were basically trivially low. So clearly, the tumor was responding in part, but there was a lot of resistance, and we wanted to study the residual disease. So at the time, it wasn't prime time to do this as part of the clinical trial, right? We were just trying to get this method to work. But we were able to get 43 primary independent tumors together from this biobank that worked well with our technique. And about half of them were treated with chemo radiation before surgery and half of them were not. And we really wanted to understand at high resolution, what was it about the residual disease that allowed it to survive chemo radiation and then eventually recur in almost every case. We knew that there was some molecular taxonomy for pancreatic cancer already. It was pretty rudimentary. It didn't guide therapeutic development or treatment paradigms, really. There was this basal-like versus classical distinction that you see in other epithelial cancers under different names, right? So for breast, there's basal luminal, as well as bladder, it's the same names, but the luminal looks a little bit more like the classical in pancreatic. So once we had this data set where we separated the malignant cells from the cast, we realized we had a very low hanging opportunity to do a de novo analysis of what are the shared programs? What themes do we see across patients that might give us some insight into this? We discovered what we now call this neuro-like progenitor program. So we recapitulated the basal, the classical. We saw some other flavors that there were hints of in bulk, but the one unique program that we saw, well, there was no literature on, as far as I know, in pancreatic cancer was this neurolike progenitor program or NERP, as we call it for short. And everywhere we looked, it got more and more interesting, right? So this program, it's called what it's called because it features pathways and genes associated with neuronal development, as well as stem-like states. Other interesting features are a lot of hepatocyte nuclear factors, which are important in endoderm development. And then when we looked at our data, we saw that the treated tumors, which had residual disease, were strong strongly enriched in this NERP program. And then we looked at some orthogonal data sets and we saw that, yes, there might be some contamination from other cell types in the bulk independent cohorts, but still the signal was very strong that having a higher NERP signature generally correlated with bad prognosis. We also had some matched organoids, right? So this data set I described is pretty large for a single cell study, but it wasn't matched pre and post treatment. So we also derived some organoids from a subset of patients and we treated them with chemo radiation vivo and we saw the same enrichment in the nerve score. So we got really, really interested in this and we felt like we had maybe found an alternative mechanism of resistance to EMT, right? So the kind of epithelial to mesenchymal, you know, through basal kind of intermediates, perhaps that mechanism of resistance has been very well studied and there's still a lot we don't know. It's still a very interesting area. And even beyond this paper, we're uncovering more about this now with some of the functional work we're doing is that we think that this NERP program may be more general than we think. It may be related to the neuroendocrine program that we see in metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer with really bad prognosis. A bladder cancer has a neuronal subtype as well. And it may be an alternative route of cancer cell therapeutic resistance to EMT.
So that's when we were approached by Nanostring. So I was a very early postdoc at the time. And we essentially saw this flyer about what is now geomics. And at the time, you know, it sounded a little bit like science fiction. I read the thing a little bit more closely and I was like, wow, this is really cool. This sounds kind of like virtual laser capture microdissection, right? And so we had a meeting with Nanostring at the Coke. And then I found out that at the Broad, Aviv, my co-mentors, I was co-mentored by Aviv Regev and Tyler Jacks, had also been in talks with Nanostring and they're building a beta site, a center of excellence there. So I got very excited and I started working very closely with the Nanostring team starting in like early 2019 on what was uh, the beta version of Geomics. And the reason I was so intrigued by this technology was because once we uncovered this NERP program, we wanted to know who the co-conspirators were, right? So I was in Xiaowei Zhuang's lab. She invented Storm and Murfish. So I'd always had an eye on omics, but on the imaging side of things as well. So I think I really appreciated that being able to see things in situ in context was really, really much preferable whenever possible to a dissociated readout, however deep that readout might be. So it was a goal of mine, even when we were doing the Nuxique stuff, to figure out how to map this onto the tumor architecture. I was sure that the NERP program, just like the other, you know, the EMT program, it's not working alone on an island. There are other cells that they're signaling with, that they're forming micro niches with, that are probably even more important to the overall all resistance phenotype we were seeing than just the cancer intrinsic signals. The reason the nanostring technology was so integral to our ability to answer these questions was because I mentioned this biobank dates back to 2003. In our final paper, we don't have any samples from that long ago, but we had some that were like five years back and there's really no fresh tissue left beyond what we could do for SnookSeq. FFPE was all we had. I always thought I didn't want to build my research program on a platform that was not going to be as generalizable as possible. And FAPE, even back then I was saying this, I know now there's more interest in this, or I guess it's become more standard, but it is very obvious that the currency in the clinic is FAPE. It was just so much easier. Like if I asked the pathologist or wrote a protocol, if I want excess tissue from FAPE, that's like very easy compared to getting fresh stuff. So that was huge that the nanostring platform was was not only compatible with FAPE, but really, I think, was optimized on. And that really played out in our early tests when we compared it with other technologies at the time. The other thing was I learned about the whole transcriptome atlas shortly after we started working together. And that was huge because, as you can imagine, if you look at the Nature Genetics paper, these are de novo programs discovered by consensus NMF. These were not genes that we were pulling from a curated cancer panel. So there's a lot of genes on there that you're not going to find on any standard cancer panel. So not having whole transcriptome would mean that we'd have to go through the laborious process of customizing a panel to try to fit if that was even possible at high fidelity. So the fact that there was this whole transcriptome approach was huge and really allowed us to map things with high fidelity onto the tumor architecture, moving between single cell, single nucleus and spatial transcriptomic space. And then the last thing that was really, really critical in my mind was the cell type specificity. So at the time, one of the technologies that was developed, actually one of my, not quite benchmate, but close by, was one of the developers of ST, which has become Visium now. And then there was also SlideSeq, and these have all improved over time, of course. But just going back then, you know, when we were looking at it, the issue I had there was that no matter how small you made your puck size or your grid, it was still a little random which cells landed on your puck. And then there was some Brownian diffusion and what transcripts you're capturing was going to be a mix of various cells 
themselves in the neighborhood of that puck. And it was problematic because I was looking at plasticity, right? And we're studying that functionally now. But in the human context, I recognize that, well, some cancer cells look mesenchymal. I mean, we're calling them mesenchymal-like. So then how do I know if I see that in a platform like that, if it's coming from a fibroblast that's nearby or it's coming from a malignant cell? Well, the malignant cell is also expressing some, you know, keratins and, you know, it's going to have copy number aberrations and things like that. But things that you can't really pick up easily with the insight technologies, right? So the nice thing about nanostring that I mentioned, it's kind of like virtual LCM was that it's not single cell resolution. Geomics isn't. But within your region of interest, you can stain for generally we do three plus a nuclear stain morphology markers. So I could delineate with my most confident protein marker, which ones are the cancer cells. And then I can use morphology too, right? This is pathology bread and butter is like you look at the architecture as well, plus the stain. And then you can do immune cells separately from fibroblasts. And now I'm sampling the whole transcriptome from each of those virtual LCM purified subsets. And that was much more appealing to me. So those are the three reasons that I was very excited about nanostring technology from the get-go. And, and things have obviously evolved to even better directions since then. So we partnered with Jason and others at Nanostring and had a really wonderful collaboration over the past few years where we basically just did what I just described. We figured out the best way to capture the data, selecting ROIs all the way to sequencing the barcodes that were captured from each cell type specific area of illumination. And then we did a lot of synergistic work with our SnookSeq data. And then very importantly, Jason led this massive effort to try to do improved receptor ligand analysis with our data. And that allowed us to ask the question of like, what is likely interact using now a spatial constraint, which we didn't have before. When you do receptor ligand analysis in single cell or single nucleus, you can't do that. So we discovered some really interesting insights. And it was nice to see some expected hits like the CXCR4, CXCL12 hit that Doug Fearon and others have studied a lot as a mechanism of immune evasion in pancreatic cancer and bad prognosis in general. That was the top enriched epithelial immune interaction that Jason pulled out of his analysis. And one of the reasons I love working with people with very different expertise than myself and the team and like somebody as brilliant as Jason with the data analysis and understanding this technology is that it also gives you more confidence in your results because I mean, I'm saying this kind of like justifying after the fact, but like, I do think it's better. I I like the collaborations better than even if I were to have all those skills or somebody on my team, you start developing these hypotheses. And like, I'm the type of scientist where it's like, if I see something that matches my hypothesis, my first question is usually like, okay, was this just some sort of like subliminal bias, right? That I just saw the data in this way. But when you have all these expert teams that have different skills and they're not forming the same hypothesis or even interested in the same questions, and then you start converging on these results, it gives me that much more confidence that we're onto something real and potentially very impactful. Yeah, I want to throw out, I am absolutely not a pancreatic biologist specialist. So I have no prior knowledge about any of these specific interactions, but I've spent a lot of my time in IO spaces and thinking about these hard to reach diseases. And so the opportunity here when Will presented this project was really to start to transform our understanding about what does spatial really mean in the context of tumor architecture and regrowth. And it was very obvious when this project was pitched to us that we were going to find something really interesting and novel and which could help patients at the end of the day. And to me, that's what these collaborations are all about too, is empowering the people that we work with to really get to the heart of the matter that they're studying. Nanostring has a long history of doing collaborations with researchers at the Broad and other institutions. And what I've seen across all of them is that the ones that shine are the folks that are coming with a passion to really drive forward patient care or who really want to understand an area of biology that 
the tools just didn't exist for before. So we've had the privilege of working with Will on this. And I really think that if we had just given you the reagent, we wouldn't have learned how to then empower the other customers that come and use our platforms down the line. So I see this as mutually beneficial across not just our labs, but across the research community, because it, it really serves as a foundation for what we put out and how we support the community down the road. Jason, from Nanostring's perspective, what wouldn't we have learned had we just passed William the reagents? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of things that you see now coming to some of our quote-unquote commercial products that are direct stems from what we learned during these early whole transcriptome projects. We released an open source package called Geomics Tools that was really built around manipulating and managing our geomics data, which is slightly different than some of the other data types that you're going to be working with. And on top of that, we realized pretty quickly that while it has some similarities to certain niche applications like LCM, it's not a data type that people are particularly familiar with. And so we were going to need to guide them a little bit better on how to analyze the data. What were some of the tricks that we learned along the way? So we also released not just the base package for managing the data, but we also released a series of workflows in a separate package called, very straightforwardly, Geomics Workflows on Bioconductor that really walk you through step to step. How do you think about Geomics? What's different about it? How do you incorporate some of the distinctions that this platform has? There was obviously some other new math that we had to invent for Will's project. You know, Will likes to push the edges of what the platforms can do. Um, I think pretty much across all the projects that we've done, there's a couple notes of specific math that we use in, in that manuscript that were very specific to this project, but are helping us think about how we make sure that people are getting the cleanest signal out of their data and make sure that they understand which cells are really expressing which types of receptors, ligands, and, and other signaling components. That's very well said, Jason. And I think that also was one of the things that was so refreshing in working with you guys on this was that I felt like from the beginning to today, it's been a full-blown scientific collaboration where similarly, as you said, there's a lot of things that we wouldn't have thought of or understood could be done because we don't have the level of knowledge of the technology that you guys do throughout. So I think synergy is an overused word now, but like I feel like this was really, a, for me, an exemplar of that and how it can work out really well. And as you said, we're pushing things in other directions now as well that we'll be excited to share at some point in the near future, hopefully. But yeah, I'm not sure the experimental side of people when we were trying to like do three play changes per slide that that was the push that you know was intended but it worked out so we got a lot of data yeah i'm hearing more and more from researchers that they're getting overwhelmed with the mountain of data that they're going to be receiving from these new insight platforms that is i think one of the things that sets nanostring apart in terms of our commitment to our customers is really to make sure that we don't just leave you at data we really want to build out a platform that supports you all the way from your experimental design to the results and the interpretation down at the very end of the results. And so you'll see that across all the platforms that we release, Geomics, Encounter, and the upcoming Cosmics platform. We're all making sure that each of those is producing robust, biologically interpretable results. And we really want to remove that burden, honestly, personally. You know, if they want to find a way to get me to retire early, that would be great. I don't think it's going to happen. There's going to be new platforms and new projects. I think the company recognizes that a lot of scientific labs don't necessarily have giant expertise in bioinformatics. And that can be a big barrier for folks who have a limited lab compared to some of the resources that are available at the Broad, for example. So we're trying to remove those barriers wherever possible. And that includes 
open source tools. It includes our commercial analysis platforms. It also includes, we've started to launch data analysis services for folks that just want to get a quick answer really quickly and work with teams like mine that are on the services team that are really built around driving people to scientific insights. And so across the board, Nanostring is really committed to this as part of our core value. We want people to do great science and we're excited to see what they're going to do. Yeah, we've been talking for about half an hour and so far the themes that have come up are cross-discipline partnerships and synergy, as we just talked about, as well as, for Will at least, having the technology really catch up with the research that you want to do. Because I feel like at the beginning when you were looking at pancreatic cancer or studying the pancreas, single cell wasn't possible after when you were back with your fellowship was really when SNUC RNA-seq was then available, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think the spatial stuff that, you know, we ended up doing together with Nanostring was obviously not possible either back in 2015. No, I mean, I think that's kind of always the balance, right? It's like everybody's excited by the latest and greatest thing. And I think how it matches your question of interest is also very important and the limitations of the system you're working in, right? I think some of the projects that Jason and I are collaborating on now, it may be even better examples of why spatial is needed. When you're starting to ask about certain features in the pathologic tissue that the pathologist can see, but you can't ask the molecular questions at the level of an H&E or even IHC stains, that's when I think it becomes really powerful. So I think that's the other thing that I have tried to be wary of. There's nothing wrong with this, but it's very easy, I think, to take a new technology and then apply it to something and then ask questions later. And I think in the beginning that works out when you're kind of profiling, but I think the the, the greatest power you can get from some of these technologies where you have a perfect marriage between a question that can really only be answered or optimally answered by the technology. And then the technology is molded or, you know, some innovations from Jason's team from the analysis side to really get you the answers you want. So I think that's kind of the sweet spot we found over time together. So I've been at Nanostring for four years now, and I came over because I got so intrigued by this, what looked like hypothesis testing machine that was, like you said before, totally futuristic, totally out of sci-fi, didn't think it was going to work, was really excited to see if it could. And I think the thing that has struck me over the course of several collaborations now is that the ones that are the most successful across the board have been hypothesis driven and have been ones where people are coming with a question that they really truly need answered. The atlasing type of efforts are great resources. They serve a foundational role within the community. Geomics especially is totally a hypothesis testing machine. And it's built specifically for that. Cosmics is going to be a little bit broader in terms of it being more free from experimental constraints. But I still view that any spatial question really needs to come with that question. It needs to come with a perspective of, I have to know what's going on. And that can be across dozens of cell types, but you still should be approaching this from a scientific perspective. We're not librarians necessarily, right? And that's sort of where I view the Atlas as sitting as a resource and a library of everything that we know about biology. But the real power is, is the questions that people come to that library with. That kind of segues perfectly into the next question I was going to ask. What advice would you give to researchers considering embarking on spatial? And I think coming up with proper questions was something that both of you alluded to and has become extremely apparent in basically everybody that I speak to. But perhaps what other advice would you have? No, I think that is the most important thing is thinking ahead about the question and the hypothesis and 
even more so than a hypothesis, just a question, as Jason said, right? I think it's actually empowering and better to not have a hypothesis sometimes, but have a very good question where you're open-minded with whatever the answer is going to be. I'm not here to like say hypotheses are bad, but I think increasingly I've seen that hypotheses is just another word for bias, right? But I think if the question is well-designed, you shouldn't need a hypothesis, right? So that would be my little plug for question-based research rather than strict hypothesis-based research. But I think the other thing is to also like have a very open mind about what's possible. Because I think that, as Jason was saying, right, this all seemed like sci-fi before. And I think even within like the geomics and cosmic systems, like when we have conversations, like it's not just on the analysis side, a lot of it's on the analysis side, but I think you can get quite creative with your questions, you know, so I'll give you an example. I mean, this is not something we created, but it hadn't been applied broadly in this context when we embarked on it, which was, you know, we had some features of interest, pathological features of interest, and we wanted to understand distance information with geomics, right? And so we were going to draw ROIs, but the idea of making like concentric shapes so that you could actually see if there was a gradient of gene expression and build a little bit more confidence versus just, is it up or is it down? Like you actually see, oh, it's going up as you move closer to the feature, it's down as you move away. And then if there's something that's anti-correlated, right, that gives you some sense. And then doing the functional follow-up, I think is super critical as well for obvious reasons. But I think that's the other thing is when you see one of these technologies, you may see one example or a couple examples, but asking about other possibilities, right? So we asked about this. It was possible to draw ROIs in a concentric fashion, but what wasn't possible was the segment across three different cell types within each of those concentric shapes. So another part of part of Jason's team, but another couple of members of Nanostring actually helped us, you know, we actually wrote one script for like the batching of this analysis part. And then Nanostring had written this script for actually creating those segments that we could then import into the geomics software and run it. And that was something that wasn't built in, but it all started with a question. We want this information, so can we do it? So I think that's my other piece of advice. The technology already seems so amazing and future looking, but but if there's something that you're curious about that isn't necessarily built into the standard software or the collection protocol, just ask, think about it or discuss, because I think that's just one example of how uh, we were able to do something that wasn't there before. So then not just like accepting the status quo, but then requesting more from the instruments that you're using or seeing, right? when appropriate, right? Obviously, the instruments do 99% of what people are going to want to do. But I think it's also useful for people to know that there is some space for innovation within this really nice system that's been set up. I guess the flip side of it is that let's say somebody was kind of really fixed on that idea I just said, and they read the brochures, they go to a few talks, and it's not mentioned. And then they think, oh, well, we can't do this with nanostring. I think I hear that sometimes too, where certain things are kind of taken at face value as like the entire space of possibility. And I think that is just not the case. I'd like to echo and amplify that just a second, because one of the things that I think we benefit from at the company is the voices of the customers that are really trying to push the limits of the system. Our customer experience team is really built up from the ground to help people who want to do innovative designs. So my team is obviously not large enough to do collaborations with every single customer that we have, but our customer experience team is there to enable people who have new questions that they want to ask with the machine. It's a lot more flexible than the brochures will tell you, just like Will alluded to. And it's not just the machine that you're buying, you're buying into the support system that Nanostring offers. And that's not just the software, not just the reporting. It's how we make sure that when you want to do an experiment, that you get set up for success with that experiment from very start all the way through the end. So if you've got an idea 
and you think that geomics might be the solution for it, but you don't see a tool for it, definitely reach out to our teams because we want to hear it. We want to see if we can't help you do it because you're going to get the best science out that way. A question that I had was how does post-treatment expression affect continued disease when it comes to metastasis or a recurrence of the cancer? That's a great question and somewhat of an open question. You know, some of the follow-up that we have done after this paper, we are seeing slight variants, but overall this neurolike progenitor program, we're seeing in other contexts, including metastases. And I think that what we haven't been able to study yet, but is on the list of things that are interesting is so pancreatic cancer is generally pretty widely metastatic, whether it's a SMAD4 mutant or not, right? There's a little bit of a dichotomy with how metastatic it is based on that particular gene. But what we do see occasionally is patients with a local recurrence, local only recurrence, the best of our imaging and and biochemical assays, right? CA99 and whatnot. But in those cases, what we would be really interested to look at is what comes back and how does it look compared to when I say residual, that came out of the patient, right? They were treated with chemotherapy, radiation, immunotherapy, losartan, some combination. Then the residual tumor was plucked out during the surgery. And then if they have a recurrence right afterwards, or you know, a year or two years later in the same area, that's really nice in two reasons, because unlike a MET, it's coming back into more or less the same microenvironment. So I think some of the spatial questions and organization are really Really intriguing in that particular case. And then two, I think that would also help answer your question. How similar does the residual disease that we took out at the time of surgery look to the local recurrence? So I would imagine that there's definitely signs of plasticity in some of our early lineage tracing experiments and other clues, but it's also unclear with plasticity how reversible it is, or you know, to borrow an engineering term, if there's like hysteresis, right? Like, does it come back the same way or does it go through some different intermediates? So it's also possible, I think, that the recurrent disease will look quite different because maybe it had to morph into a more EMT or NERP-like state to survive. But then when it came back, it might be more growth advantageous to look like something else phenotypically. So I think we don't really know yet, but it's a very interesting question. And then with the appearance of subtypes similar to other tissues being NERPs, do you think that similar treatment and management can be used? I hope so. I alluded to this a little bit earlier. I think that's, a, again, another very insightful point that you just made. And I think when you see these types of things that I was frankly pretty surprised. So this is like me being like probably a little overly candid. But if you look at our preprint, in 2020 that we put on bar archives, there's no mention of a NERP program. It's not because we didn't see it. It was because I have this separate interest in cancer neuroscience and like the interactions. There was a hint of it. It was not as nearly as strong as what we did between the preprint and the final published paper is we basically almost doubled our cohort and it's mostly treated patients, right? And I mentioned that this program, this NERP program is enriched and treated. So you can imagine how much stronger the signal got. But this is what I was saying before about being aware of your biases, right? Like I didn't want to just see neuronal stuff everywhere because I was interested in that. But once we did the full analysis and the functional stuff that's not published and that we've been working on for the past year now, I think that it's very clear that there's something really interesting going on here, that it's real in many contexts and we see the same patterns that it's impossible to ignore. And then as I'm talking to other people who study other cancer types, as I mentioned, there's bladder, there's prostate, even in breast cancer, there actually may be some hints. I don't want to speak prematurely, right? So we don't have the definitive evidence, but it would not be surprising to me if in five years, we realized that for various reasons, this neuro-like, neuroendocrine-like phenotype was a little harder to pick out than EMT. It's a little less obvious, morphologically different maybe, but it is a parallel and very important mechanism of just bad outcomes, whether it's metastasis or treatment resistance in, in many epithelial cancers, I'll say. And then the treatment paradigms hopefully will be similar, which would be great.
One of the questions that I had was when it comes to the nerves that sort of like infiltrate, how significant are those in the prognosis of cancer or the changing of the tumor microenvironment? I think much more significant than we even realize right now. Now, over the past couple years, there's been increasing excitement in this field of cancer neurobiology or neuroscience. It's still nowhere near the maturity that many other fields of tumor biology are. I mean, it's not surprising when you think about the role of the nervous system, peripheral and central, in controlling all sorts of processes, right? I think that the crosstalk that we're uncovering, first of all, the modalities are very diverse from biochemical to metabolic to electrical to physical. And I think the mechanisms that are slowly being uncovered, it's a little bit more far along in some of the central nervous system, like glioma work, like Michelle Manje and Hamsa Vekintesh have done some seminal work in that area where they see that it really is reciprocal in terms of the benefits. So like, you know, you'll see these glioma cells, right, which are astrocyte lineage, interact, forming these synaptic-like structures that on EM look like real synapses with these neurons in the brain. And when the neurons have electrical activity, they basically release secreted neuroligin 3. It binds, I think, to a some sort of norexin receptor on the cancer side, the glioma side, and then it creates all this oncogenic signaling, PI3 kinase, mTOR. And then the cancer cell in turn responds by releasing a bunch of glutamate, which then actually re reduces the excitation threshold of the presynaptic neuron. And then now you got this positive feedback loop where the neurons are getting more excited. They're releasing more ligand that creating oncogenic signaling in the cancer cell. And I think we're seeing more mechanisms like that, right? So, and then one other example I'll give you is Alec Kimmelman at NYU and others basically found that certain pancreatic cancer cell lines that depend on the semi-essential amino acid serine, the lines that are actually dependent on the, that amino acid, whether you transplant it in vivo or look in a dish, they basically will optimize their codon usage to basically secrete more NGF, nerve growth factor, to recruit nerves into the local tumor microenvironment, which then re release vesicles filled with serine. So like literally the cooperation is fascinating. I think those are just tip of the iceberg and we're doing work in this area as well. So I think we're going to, again, find that this is a very rich part of the tumor microenvironment that needs to be studied. Could we move on to a quick fire round where I will just say a word or a phrase and you can give me your association with that? Okay. Heterogeneity. Tumor. Data. Big. Pancreas. Deadly. Spatial biology. Awesome. Pain. Horrible. Patient. Compassion. Geomics. Amazing. That's the list that I had. I guess to end the episode, I wanted to ask, you've mentioned a couple of times that you're continuing to work with Jason on a bunch of things. I'm wondering whether we could tease a couple of those things that are happening behind the scenes. Sure. With both geomics and the spatial molecular imaging. And Jason, feel free to jump in too. We are looking at the cancer neurobiology questions I alluded to. That's one big area of collaboration. We're also starting to venture into, you know, there's others collaborating with Nanostring on this as well, but we're also very interested in kind of the functional genomic screen and a spatial context angle for some of our phenotypes of interest. And then I think on the SMI side, it's my group as well as Martin Hemberg's group at the Evergrande over at Brigham and Women's. We're forming a very nice collaboration with Nanostring around the optimal acquisition and analysis of data for kind of our pancreatic cancer questions using spatial molecular imaging. So there's, that's been a lot of fun too. Yep. The data story doesn't stop with this project.
There's tons more to do and lots more fun to be had. I'm sure there'll be a ton more for us to talk about, Will. But until then, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, as well as Jason. Thank you for coming onto the pod. Really enjoyed it, John, and thank you. Great to be here. Nice talking to you guys this morning. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. If you would like to know more about Nanostring's product and panel offerings or speak to a member of our staff, please visit nanostring.com. You may also get in touch with us through LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter. The links to which are in the description.